Very, very briefly, I'm going to try and catch up. So I'm going to give a very small brief introduction to who I am, what I do, and um, my relationship to radio. I'm going to very... I'm going to talk very quickly about the potential of using one tiny part of Marshall McLuhan's ideas about radio as a way into a different notion of radio that um, I, as um, from purely personal, not as a, a normative or prescriptive um, position, but rather as a personal reflective one, um, enjoy. And that's a, that McLuhan insight allows me to make a kind of uh, relationship between proximity and distance in terms of the experience of listening to radio, which I think has points of convergence and points of divergence with what we've been talking about today. I'm going to illustrate a few projects that I think relate to that, and then I'm going to end um, very with a discussion that goes back to what Mag said in the introduction about how these processes of listening at a distance are ones that are anchored in both the kind of acoustic phenomenon that make hearing possible and uh, in terms of both waveform and hearing. So, you know, my background is that I write about photography and architecture in different ways. Um, this is a magazine that I write a lot for and they commission me to write about a specific set of photographs. Um, they won't tell me who the photographer is, they won't tell me anything about the work, but I just have to respond to it in a particular way. And that relationship between me, photography, and architecture, in a sense, is one that relates, again, to the sound work that I produce. The common theme, for me at least, is about exploring how we inhabit our landscapes, the different languages we bring to make that relationship uh, have meaning, um, the diversity of our experiences of those landscapes, and um, that kind of thing. So the kind of work that I do moves between text, like this piece on the right, video work, and badges and other things. I produced a book called Autumn Leaves, which is more generally about sound and the environment, and that book was accompanied by uh, uh, audio CDs. And I have some relationship to radio. In the late 1980s, I worked on a college radio station for two years. And then in the very early 1990s, in the district of um, Meurs in France, I worked on Rock FM on a weekly radio show. Um, I've contributed uh, programs to Resonance FM, like this one up here called Planes, Trains and Automobiles. And I've worked on this project called Radio Taxi. And then I worked on a strange internet project called Relay, which there's... Um, a CD documentation of down at the bottom, which was using a special piece of um, coding so that people who came to uh, the website at different, from different time zones were kind of shuttled into a queue so that if a track was to be heard at nine o'clock, it would be heard at nine o'clock across all of the different time zones. So that was a project about exploring the tensions between the transmission boundary of radio as an analog system and the transmission system of digital as a play and click methodology, the kind of tension that we've heard people talking about today. And then another example of how I've kind of worked with radio and then as a consequence thought through what I would like radio to be 
is uh, illustrated by this strange image in the top left hand side of the slide. And what I did there, what you can see me doing, this is me with much more hair than I've got now. This, this object here on the back of my head is a top knot, um, which unfortunately no longer exists, despite the fact that it was a relatively recent past. And what I was doing is I was um, DJing for 25 hours in the back of a white transit van that was travelling around the orbital motorway that surrounds London, the M25. On top of the van was an antenna, a broadcast antenna, and on the back of the van was a petrol-driven generator. And basically what we were doing was splashing out this very strong radio signal, and you could see cars travelling past this van, and you could see people looking and fiddling with their radios or <laughs> pressing with their radios because they were getting something <laughs> very unexpected. So compared to the other presenters who've um, offered their thoughts and inspiration today, my relationship to the radio is much less one of a producer and much more one of a consumer, of a listener. But through the experiences of working with the radio and through my own experiences of working with sound and how those experiences of working with sound relate to my experiences of thinking about aesthetics and landscape, I've kind of come across what I think is an interesting way of thinking about how we might experience sound. And how I get to that relationship, at least for the purposes of what we're talking about this afternoon, is by extracting something very small from Marshall McLuhan's relatively um, enduring engagement with the world of radio. For obviously for McLuhan, radio, like any other technology, represents an extension of the human sensorium. And I'm doing that because, you know, the, the, the classic McLuhan um, is, uh, relates to extensions of the human sensorium that work at the visual level, but there are others, of course, too. And radio is an extension in two directions, as far as McLuhan's concerned. One of our senses, the mouth, extends out across space to um, attach our sense to um, individuals who were outside our kind of biological reach. The other extension that occurs is that our ear, instead of being locked onto the side of our head and able to hear sounds within a relatively circumscribed area, according to McLuhan, the advent of electronic technologies allows that sense to extend out into the world. So McLuhan sees the radio as this strange kind of relay mechanism which brings the far close and takes the close and delivers it to the far. Despite when he was writing, McLuhan tends to focus on radio as a worldly, a wordly medium. He thinks of radio primarily as something that's engaged in the, word, the world of words, which is, I think, slightly strange given the, not, given the, what was happening to radio at the time that he was writing, and given his own involvement in radio programmes himself. So for McLuhan, there's a specific relationship between radio and literacy. The explosive potential, or the revolutionary potential, he calls it, of radio has a particular reach when you're talking about societies that are less literate. With societies that he are what he calls highly literate, the explosive potential of radio becomes uh, muted, it becomes uh, ma managed and absorbed and, and maintained. But for those societies 
who, according to McLuhan, for whom literacy is something that's emerging or developing, radio has a much more fundamental uh, and radical potential. And part, it seems, of McLuhan, in at least understanding media, um, part of the, the reason why radio has this potential is because of this unstable ability to bring the far and the near together. Now, obviously, it's not just McLuhan who talks about these relationships between radio, proximity, and distance. If you look at those manifestos um, that are brought together by Neil Strauss in his book, Radio Text, manifestos that come um, from the 1910s, 1920s, 1930s, and later, often in those manifestos, whether they're by Cubo-futurists or... Uh, Italian futurists or Russian constructivists, there are these questions about radio being something that spans the globe, that brings the near far or, or, um, or sends, the, sends the near far. And there's a lot to be said about this notion of proximity, about, about radio being something that brings things to us, that makes things familiar, that brings things close. If you look at, for example, the relationship between the development of community consciousness amongst dispersed peoples, like, for example, those who inhabit the Northwest Pacific regions of the American continental mass, then radio has, since the 1930s, had a very strong role in developing a sense of Inuit consciousness, of developing an idea of community that exceeds the vast geographical distances that separate physical communities in, in that area of the world. And so maybe there's something to be said about the idea of radio being a proximate medium, being something that brings things to us. The philosopher Richard Rorty talks about this idea of we consciousness, he talks about this idea of us inhabiting a world where solidarity is no longer possibly, or no longer possible in terms of being established according to some objective found, uh, foundational principle. Instead, we can only make solidarity out of co communicative communities in which I and you become, through the process of exchange and discussion, we. So you come closer to me, and then I'm able to describe you as part of a group that, calls, that can be called we. So in one, one sense, this idea about radio bringing, bringing things proximate is a positive one. Although, and this is just a very small sidebar, in kind of military history, the introduction of the radio was something that was resisted within both the American army and the German navy precisely because it had this potential to disrupt distance, had this particular potential to disrupt hierarchy. The US military particularly, uh, the US army, sorry, particularly, were resistant to the introduction of radio tested it in different field conditions and decided that one of the dangers of radio would be that it would create um, local autonomy, local independence, the ability for soldiers in the field to start making decisions for themselves against the decisions that their generals at greater liberty had decided for them. And a parallel story can be told about the way that the US Navy wanted to hold on in from the opposite perspective to the idea of a ship being an independent and autonomous unit once it had left its dock 
and sailed towards its mission being outside control and communication. So for those two very different reasons, US Army, because they didn't want, um, they wanted to be able to control everything, the German Navy, because they wanted to retain their independence, radio and the military has actually had a, a much slower relationship of development in Germany and uh, America than uh, communication technologies and the military have had in other places. Similarly, although we can make a very interesting story about the North and Inukituk uh, community consciousness extending through the radio or the moccasin telegraph um, over the snowy wastes where travel is difficult, on the other hand, if you look at this 1931 advert for Burgess Batteries, which shows two Inuit children listening to the radio, you can see that there are other stories about what radio brings from afar. And this is a story where it says on this advert, Burgess aids the northward course of civilization. So yes, radio brings the far near, but sometimes that's maybe not uh, the only thing that we might want of it. So very quickly then, I'm just going to talk briefly about what might be another kind of radio. Not the radio that we tend to hear about described in terms of closeness, intimacy, familiarity, its inhabitation of the daily rituals of waking up and going to sleep, of cooking the dinner and putting the children to bed, but a different kind of radio, one where the things are left in the distance, things are left far away. It's perfect timing. According to Derrida, there is abroad this thing that he calls the metaphysics of presence. And this is a kind of catch-all term that Derrida uses to describe something that's part, not just of Western philosophical practice, but it is part of how, as a consequence, we organize our language and we organize our thought. And this thing called metaphysics of presence, according to Derrida, means that terms like nearness and closeness, intimacy and proximity, are all valued positively. They relate strongly to what it is to be human, to what it is to be authentic, to notions of truth. So they're minted with, a, with great value. On the other hand, on the other side of the coin perhaps, notions of distance and detachment um, and farness are seen as um, devalued currency, as seen of having something to do with inhumanity. Now, this notion between radio as a proximate or familiar form is something that we see in lots of different ways. But I, I'm going to quickly spin through another way of looking at radio, not as something which is familiar, but something which is distant. And I remember as a child, um, my two grandfathers had two radios, both of which became objects of symbolic presence in my early life. My mother's father had a radio which had um, the frequency dial divided up with capitals of far-off countries. Köln, Beograd, Sarajevo, Moskva, Zurich, Paris, Madrid. And I looked at these names, and, I, and these names conjured up to me short-sleeved shirts in the heat, fur coats in snow-bound streets, glass windows, thatched roofs, indecipherable dialects, distance and exoticism. My mother's father, on the other hand, went further with his radio. And his radio 
didn't just have the little dial with the city names identified on it, but it had a fold-out little map that showed the whole globe where all of the latitudes were divided up with potential radio destinations. I don't think I ever listened to these radios, but just the idea that a radio wave could travel that distance, the idea that these words could mean something, something that I could never quite capture, something that's always stayed with me, and it's something that I like about the idea of radio, not as something that's familiar or comfy or comforting or close or intimate or any of those things, but something that's distant and indecipherable, difficult, foreign. So what would a distant radio be? Well, for one thing, you'd have to remove the frame. You'd have to take out scheduling. You'd have to take out announcements. You'd have to take out discernible playlists. You'd have to cut off some of those relationships between what we hear and what, um, what we get from the other senses, what we get in the Radio Times, what we get on the website, whether it's something as amazing as what Lance is doing with the Flickerman or something that's one of these little applications you get on your iPhone that just tells you what you can listen to now. So all of that frame would have to go. But, it, but in brackets, that frame couldn't really go. You couldn't really get rid of all of the structures because structures inevitably persist. I mean, structures of language, structures of music, structures of time, because if radio is anything, it's something that inhabits the temporal domain. And that inhabitation, second on second, minute on minute, gives it a structure. And we've heard some amazing examples of people who've played with that structure today. But there are possibilities of distance as a listening strategy. We can, for example, as a non-Spanish speaker, ex expose ourselves to the seven hours and ten minutes of Castro's speech to the Third Communist Congress in Havana. And as a non-Spanish speaker, I think I would experience that, especially as a live broadcast, as something that contained within it a great distance, something that never came back to me as familiar or meaningful or fixed. There's also this thing which I've called the kind of kitchen side of things, which has been alluded to today, which is that notion of listening to the radio that involves switching it on, starting to listen, not being really sure what it is that you're listening to, taking time for that meaning to settle down through your ears and then into your brain. And for me, that's the thing that I like most of all about radio, is that strange experience of being unfamiliar, of not finding myself at home. Of course, again, as we've heard, there are lots of technical and institutional impediments to this idea of listening at a distance. Trying, um, listening to people today talking about, uh, with Andy and Lance talking about how they pitch to the BBC, the idea of having, saying, well, OK, we don't actually want any impediments to the free flow of fugitive meaning and foreignness is not really going to go down particularly well, whichever controller is in charge of the BBC. And strangely, for someone who's a fan of the digital and of uh, networked communication technologies, there's something about the digital itself, in many respects, that inhibits this sense of the spontaneous happening upon things, of finding things by accident. With a digital radio, you need to know where you're going. With an analog radio, you can flick around, flick between things like your body coming up next to the radio as you turn to get an onion from your cupboard. All of these things change what you experience, and they give you this sense, for me at least, of something that is um, distant. 
Now, there are other examples of radio distance and conscious of time. I'm just going to push through these. One of these that will be very familiar to you all is the CONET project, which documents numbers stations, which are these strange forms of radio transmission that are kind of amalgams of numbers and uh, Morse code and uh, warnings like Achtung is a very familiar thing that you will hear on many numbers stations, female voices, male voices, children's voices. They are the kind of real world analogues of the Orphe transmissions that Tom began talking about today. And then there's another example as well, which Tom alluded to too, which is this, this, which is documented on this CD called the Ghost Orchid, which are examples of electronic voice phenomena, where people listen to the static and draw from that static, strange semantic meaning. And for me, these are kinds of examples of distant radio. But the digital domain can have examples of distance uh, in, engaged can engage with examples of distance. Atao Tanaka's notion of a global string, which was this device here, which is um, a physical string that leaves one concert hall, kind of goes through the internet, and then arrives at another concert hall where it becomes another physical string. So you can connect two performance spaces across vast distances through the physical and then the electronic pipework um, so that you can kind of play simultaneously in these two environments, simultaneously obviously depending on the time lag of the technology. Obviously what's interesting about Tanaka's work is when he started doing this in the 1990s, the delay was huge. When he's doing it in recent performances, the delay is minimal. Um, and working with Pedro Ribello at Sark in Belfast, he's been producing not just a single sound event going going from a wire to a pipeline, but a multi-channel distribution of many performers working simultaneously in sound. <laughs> These images on the right-hand side of this, image, of this slide, quickly, this one, are, represent little microphones which are tuned in for audio streams. And these are streams uh, of audio that are sounding out across the globe that you can click on and listen to in real time um, one's in Dakar, one's in Tokyo, one's in London, one's in Reykjavik, all around the globe. And this black mark follows the, the sun, the sun and the moon across the earth. So for me, these are examples of um, bringing distance to the radio, keeping it foreign, keeping it strange. I'm describing this digital activity as a radio activity because it's using a kind of transmission vector. But the thing about the Locus Sonus Tuna project is you can always find out where the transmission's from. For me, this one, Sound Bum, is even more interesting, partly because it's all in Japanese. And when you eventually click onto this little live spot here, which is this small blue um, dot that people on the, the top screens might be able to see, you get propelled into this world where you've got no idea what's going on as a, as a non-Japanese speaker. Is that foliage I'm listening to that's rustling? Are they human footfalls? Is that an animal? But it's something that has this, for me, has this kind of hypnotic sense of never being formalized, never being finished, never being fixed, just unfolding at some steady pace of its own logic. 
And for me, in terms of how I listen to this stuff, this has kind of helped me understand how to make work as well. And my projects, like this one, Some Memories of Bamboo, and this one, which has this terribly long title, which I'm not going to give uh, any attempt to um, articulate this afternoon, are, on the one hand, site-specific works. They're about recording real events in real places and making some kind of sense of them. But on the other hand, I want them for the listener as much as for me to be about distance, to be about the impossibility of ever finding a truth of these places, other than my own truth, other than my own experiential pleasures. Okay, so why should we listen at a distance? Well, I think we should listen at a distance for two reasons to sum up. On the one hand, we should listen at a distance because sound, in all its generosity, makes the effort itself to travel great distances not just the 5,000 metres that it travels through a process of exchange of molecular energy from the initial release of mechanical energy through the compression and rarefaction of the sound waves, not just that huge process that it, it travels from a jet plane 5,000 metres overhead all the way down to our ear, but the even longer distances that sound has, has managed to travel, like the 5 million metres that sound travelled between the explosion of Krakatoa and the island of Mauritius. So I think that sound prepares us for listening at a distance. If it can do it, then why can't we? But we can, and that's the second point, that our ears are prepared themselves, as Peter suggested, to engage in a world of distance. They're kind of hardwired to deal with distance. There's very little sense, I think, in devoting so much evolutionary energy to being um, able to listen to something that's happening nearby. If it's happening nearby, your other sensory mechanisms are pretty much going to be able to deal with its presence. The fact that our inner ear cells are able to detect vibrations that take place on the eardrum that are a thousandth of the diameter of an atom. A thousandth of the diameter of an atom is a vibration that we can sense and acknowledge as, as, as a, uh, an event in the world, to me, that suggests that not just sound is generous in allowing us to hear it at great distances, but our ears too are generous in allowing us to sense those great distances and to sense those vibrations of um, minute detail through the human ear. And that's all I wanted to say. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs>